Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, people, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. Currently, half the global population lives in energy poverty. This means an alarming number of people lack safe and reliable ways to cook, charge, and light their lives. With 3 billion people cooking over smoky open fires that put them and their families at risk, leading to as many as 4 million premature deaths annually. It was these shocking numbers that spurred today's guest, Jonathan Cedar, CEO of BioLight, to take action. BioLight endeavors to bring, quote unquote, energy everywhere, the company's official trademark slogan, with revolutionary products that transform the way humans light their lives off the grid. With a team of engineers and designers, they develop products like BioLight Camp Stove, a portable biomass stove that leverages thermoelectrics to create smokeless fires and charge personal devices. They call their approach a parallel innovation business model, pairing the needs of families living in energy poverty with the passions of outdoor enthusiasts. Jonathan, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you for having me. Did I nail the intro? I think you did. Okay. You said, I think. I think you're being kind. No, no. I think so. (laughs) I genuinely think yes. (laughs) So I got to you. I failed to mention this in the intro, but our guest, Climate Neutral, which is an amazing organization, which is also founded by you and funded originally by BioLite as well. That's where we got to meet, if you will, virtually. Tell me a little bit about the founding behind BioLite, which is now 10 years old. And I like your parallel innovation business model, which is basically for profit and purpose. And I do think this is how every company should be built and or retro built for today's age and beyond. But if you can just take us back to the very beginning and what was, no pun intended, although somewhat intended, what was the spark for the founding of BioLite? Going back even a little bit before BioLite, I'm an engineer by training. I studied engineering and environmental science in college and spent the first part of my career working in a consumer product development firm called Smart Design, which for folks who have heard of design firms like IDEO, basically these are firms that help mostly well-established companies do user need finding in their customer sets and then envision new product lines that can serve those needs and then actually do the design and engineering and introduction to manufacture for the physical solutions to their customers' problems. We worked with Frog for a very long time, so it's kind of like that. There you go. Frog would be a lot like a smart design. And so that was an awesome place to learn one of the many things that we need to do well to make BioLite have impact in the world, which is how do you design physical solutions to people's problems, and then reliably and cost-effectively manufacture them. And so BioLite started as a night and weekend project while I was working at this design firm when the head of the model shop and my co-founder of BioLite, Alec Drummond, came to me and he said, hey, what do you think about making a camping stove that burns wood instead of gas so you don't ever have to worry about running out of fuel when you go camping? I was like, oh, sounds like a fun thing. I'm outdoorsy. You're outdoorsy. Alec is 25 years my senior, and I thought it would be fun to apprentice him in a maker project. But as we dug into the problem, what we genuinely stumbled onto was the fact that cooking out past grid access was not primarily a camper's issue, but was the way that half the planet was cooking their meals every day. And that essentially an open campfire was the state of the art for 
cooking in developing countries and that the smoke from those fires was killing more people every year than HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria combined. Because basically, you've got the same levels of exposures as smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. And if half the planet was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, I don't think we'd be surprised to hear that 4 million people were dying as a result. But that was very surprising to us because being New Yorkers and designed for sort of fancy things for well-served customers, that just wasn't our intuitive life experience. And we just never been exposed to it. And it was such a compelling problem that I think neither one of us could really get it out of our heads. And so while we were working on this prototype for this camping thing, I just kept feeling like with all of the resources that we had received being well-educated Americans with access to the skills and financial resources to make new things in the world that we really, I felt like had a responsibility. And quite frankly, I was very excited by working on problems for people who hadn't had their problems solved so many times before. And so we were sitting with this dichotomy between we're campers and we've got this small idea that serves our needs. And then we have an understanding that half the planet has this massive need, but very little idea about how to go out and solve that. And that was really the problem that we started with. And to me, it was really an economic problem as much as a technical problem, because making a cleaner fire, the technologies exist. The question is, how do you productize them and make them affordable and get them into the hands of people who need them? And that was much trickier because we're talking about families who make on average, about $3 a day. Most of BioLite's customers today live below their national poverty line, which, for example, in Kenya, which is our largest market, is about $3.10 a day. So you're talking about a pretty low-income customer. There are not well-developed distribution networks that reach that customer, and those customers probably don't have the $40, $50, $60 it would take to buy access to this product all on day one. And so the question for me was, how do you set up an economic model that can serve this customer consistently? And the first question was, how do you fund a team to work on this problem? And that's where this concept of parallel innovation came from, which was, well, we really do understand the needs of campers and the way that campers buy gear and campers are doing very similar things, cooking on wood, or at least in our vision, they would be doing similar things. Can we use that as an anchor revenue stream to buy us the time? to figure out the economically sustainable business model that can service this remote low-income customer. And wouldn't culture also be, I know the economics of it are huge, but also the culture. And I don't know if you spent time in Kenya and some of these other areas, but you also needed to change their mindset. But I know that you do it the old way because there's also probably some kind of family tradition and culture that's involved. Here's a new, healthier way. So you have that hurdle as well, or am I wrong? Absolutely. Culture is certainly a piece of the equation, which is how do you make something culturally relevant? And especially when you're talking about food, which is where we started, we've now branched out into lighting, which is probably actually a larger piece of business today. But we all have very specific ideas about what tastes good to us and how that gets made. So culture is a variable, but I have to say, I think that economics have been a much more dominant variable than culture. And because we choose to sell to our customers rather than donate to our customers, because we think that's the best way to reach 3 billion people, because there's just 
we haven't found the philanthropic donor ready to donate 3 billion people's worth of energy solutions. Because we ask people to pay for these things, there's a built-in feedback mechanism, which is I've either built something that you're willing to attach value to, or I haven't. And so I think that fundamentally, when you get that economic model right, it helps you tune and solve for all of the other downstream pieces. And so that's why I keep coming back to, I think the financial model was really the crux problem here. And so the starting point was, how do we build a company with enough runway to try and fail enough times until we get it right in the emerging markets context? And that's really where this idea of pairing a recreation market with a rural off-grid emerging market came from, which is the recreation market is something we feel like we can more predictably and at higher margins build and buy ourselves the time to get it right and have the emerging markets stand on their own two feet. That was really the founding observation that has underpinned the way we've been able to fund all the work that we've done in emerging markets to date. And does the recreation market in effect then subsidize what you're doing in the emerging market? Maybe that's not the right word to use, but it certainly helps. In one sense, yes. What I would say is we've never wanted to have a one-for-one subsidy. You buy a camp stove, we give what we call a home stove, the stoves that we sell in Africa. That's never made sense to us because we might sell tens or hundreds of thousands of camp stoves, but there's hundreds of millions of people who need access to clean cooking in Africa. And so there's just a fundamental scale mismatch between that sort of subsidized or philanthropic approach. But where there is a lot of leverage is if we can take those profits and reinvest them into the innovation engine of the business so that we can make products that are better targeted to the customer. We can do the deep first principles engineering to make those products as high performing and low cost, especially low cost and durable as is needed to service that customer. And that we can invest in building the distribution networks and consumer financing models that support that customer. Then if we can get that engine to a place where it turns over based on consumer value to the African consumer, then it can scale on its own. And so in one sense, the recreation market is what helps us build that foundation, but everything we layer on that foundation needs to be able to stand based on its economic value and ongoing economic value to the end consumer. So it subsidizes the launch, but not the ongoing operations. Yeah, yeah. So it's classic design thinking. You have your manifest need and your latent need. Yeah, I think that's right. Sometimes I think about it as we're our own internal VC fund. And we have also raised external venture capital to be able to stand this up. But the question is, how do you build enough runway into the future to solve a hard problem? And for us, our recreation market is what fuels that building exercise. Did you say earlier that half the world, I think you said 3 billion people, cook over an open flame, a fire, for their main meals? Yeah, so 3 billion people cook their meals over campfires using either wood or charcoal. And about a billion and a half of people, same population, so about half the people who cook on wood lack access to electricity. So they're lighting their homes with kerosene candles. They are, most people today own cell phones, but they don't have the ability to charge them. So they're walking two, three, four kilometers to town and paying someone five or 10 cents a few times a week to charge their mobile phone. They might be buying 
alkaline batteries to power a small portable radio they might have in their home. People who don't have access to electricity are spending a huge amount of their income buying really low-performing forms of energy. And then about another billion people on top of that have unreliable electricity. So they might have electricity for a couple hours a day, but they don't have it necessarily when they need it. And so, yeah, we really are talking about pretty close to half of the planet not having access to safe and reliable energy in their homes. That's kind of astonishing to me. I hadn't really thought of it like that. How are you actually reaching them? I mean, traditional ways of marketing, (laughs) marketing to the recreational user, not hard. I mean, nothing's easy, but there are tried and proven means. How are you reaching these emerging markets? Well, one thing is it's been a lot of trial and error. (laughs) We've tried a lot of different approaches, most of which haven't worked, but we've now started to circle around a handful that really do work and are really scaling. But I think the starting point is in the US, REI and Amazon and BioLite.com do a great job of selling our products. Those distribution options don't exist in Kenya, or at least not in the rural markets of Kenya. And there are no influencers in Kenya, really, that you can tap into. There are influencers, but there's still just that fundamental access question. How do I become aware of it? How do I get my hands on it? And those networks for the kinds of products that we sell, there wasn't an obvious REI Amazon answer to that in Africa. And so where we started was with essentially, if you're familiar with what sometimes gets referred to as the Avon model of selling, where it's sort of your peers sell to you on a peer-to-peer basis in your local community. That's really where a lot of our selling started. So how do you find trusted agents who can go and demonstrate product to their neighbors and build that sense of trust and have those high quality explanations? Because a lot of folks haven't seen these technologies before. And so there's a big education component associated with them as well. And then we're asking them to invest somewhere between five and 10% of their annual income in these products. Like you've got to really build a lot of trust for someone to be willing to part with that fraction of their income. I mean, I think for us, sometimes I try to think about how big an ask are we making of these customers when we go to sell them something. And I think For an average income American, it would be somewhere between a laptop and a car is what we're trying to sell. And those are really big decisions. I don't buy too many laptops or cars in my average year or my average five-year span. And so we're asking for a huge amount of trust and in turn need to deliver a tremendous amount of value. And to make that work, you need that trusted intermediary who can help you earn the customer. And does that intermediary, are they responsible for support too when things go wrong and things might break or things need maintenance? Or does it end there? How does that work? There's sort of a handful of flavors for how we support product after sale. But I guess just starting to say that access to after sales, customer support and product support is absolutely essential. If you bought a car and it broke and the dealer said, sorry, (laughs) go buy another $25,000 car, you'd be pretty angry. So yes, We need to ensure that every time and everywhere we sell something, it has access to that. But sometimes that's serviced by BioLite directly. And sometimes that's serviced by BioLite training the distributors, service staff, how to do it. So it's always one of those two things, but it's not always the same one. And how long have you been selling now? I know that you're 10 years old. Has it been 10 years that you're also selling to emerging markets, not just the recreational market? On day one, we were funded around this parallel innovation model with a fundamental opportunity of 
changing the way people access energy in emerging markets. But it took us a long time to get the product right, to get the distribution model right. So we spent the first five years selling very advanced thermoelectric cookstoves in India, which were extremely high performing, but also pretty expensive. And we also didn't really understand the path to market that well. So we partnered with these Avon style sales agencies. We built our own flagship retail store in rural Northeastern India. So we fell on our face a lot for a long time, which was part of what I expected would happen. Like, why would we think a problem as hard as this from people who haven't grown up in these markets experiencing these problems? Why would we think we'd get it right on the first try? And that's why I felt like we needed this parallel innovation model so that we could do those hard, expensive learnings over a long enough period of time and not just feel like if we didn't get it right the first time, we had to pack up and get other jobs. And so, yes, we've been working the problem with material resource and focus since day one, but I would say we've really hit our stride in the last five years. And I'll tell you what some of the crux observations were that helped us hit our stride. So one was consumer financing. We're asking people for a pretty large fraction of their income, and they might not have 50 or $60 at this very moment when they want to purchase the product. And so linking that sale to a consumer lending capability so that you can pay me $10 today and then a $2 a month for the next two years makes the products far more accessible to a low income cash flow constrained customer. Most of our customers are farmers. And so they have particularly lumpy incomes. They get a lot of money at the harvest season and then have a lot of lean months between that. And one crux was, It wasn't just that we needed the agent who could reach that customer and the logistics to move the product to that customer, but we also needed a financial product at the point of sale to help match the consumer's economics to the requirements of the product. So that was one really crux piece of learning for us. Another one was that... Let me just stop you there for a second. So did you have to partner from a regulatory standpoint with like a micro lender or were you able to handle it all by yourself like a Finca? Yes. So Finca is a key selling partner of BioLites in Uganda, for example. Full disclosure, client of my agency as well. Oh, that's great. We love Finca. Yeah. So Finca has been a longstanding partner of BioLites. Finca, for those who don't know, is a microfinance institution that makes small loans, loans that are smaller than most traditional banks could afford to do given their overheads and cost structures. Finca has built a specialty around making these micro loans to low-income consumers and being able to do that at reasonable rates with low defaults so that they can actually make it work as a business. It's life-changing. It's absolutely life-changing for these families. Yeah, Finca is a perfect example, but an example where Finca had the financial product well-developed, they didn't have the distribution and marketing product well-developed. And so we've worked with Finca as they've launched a second branch to their business called Bright Life, where it uses the Finca loan products but layers on a distribution and marketing service on top of that. And that's been a lot of what we've had to do is find partners who have one piece of the equation and coach them through the development of the second piece of the equation. And so now that we're 10 years in and the market's a little bit more mature, we are finding an increasing number of distribution and consumer finance businesses that have stood themselves up with an exclusive focus on reaching the rural consumer marketing, doing all that high touch explanation and customer service and having the ability to do consumer lending. 
So we have to do less and less of that helping a partner like Finca put the pieces together. And more and more, we have distributors that are growing up in the market who can do that whole from customer acquisition through financing and support. That's great. It just keeps making our lives so much easier and keeps increasing the amount of access for the rural customer. And you can focus on the product and making sure the product is right and it's valuable and it's doing what it's supposed to do. Yeah. But for the first 10 years of this market, and even today, we can't just be a traditional manufacturer, which is absolutely where our core focus and value is. We have to be that high touch supporting partner to the distributor because their business is so much more complex than REI's. So I'm sorry to ruin your flow, but you were talking about kind of learnings along the way. And one of them was obviously financing. Basically, the trifecta that's needed, obviously, we need an amazing product that delivers a huge amount of value to the consumer for its cost. That's table stakes. That's BioLite's core competency. But we also need to support this whole access to the customer piece of it, which is taken easily as much effort and focus for us as the product piece has. I guess this is really the simpler explanation of it. And it's interesting. I had the guys from Bombas on last week. We haven't aired it yet. And it always comes back to the same thing, whether it's Bombas or Bolin Branch. You can't just have a strong mission or social impact. You have to have a great product. Otherwise, you can't actually fulfill your social mission. And it sounds like your background in particular, you're very innovation, industrial design, design-based. And how do you find the time now to continue innovating and creating the next product and meeting the needs of two very disparate markets, but that also feed off of each other? That's got to be pretty challenging. Absolutely. It's extremely challenging. The basic answer to your question is, I've hired a lot of people who are a lot smarter than me to be able to move forward all of these attributes of the business. My number one job as the CEO is not to be the bottleneck, but to enable my team to move forward across an increasingly diverse set of goals for the company. And yeah, look, sometimes it is a little bit sad. I feel like product is certainly my first passion. And if there was anything I was (laughs) particularly skilled at, it would be design and engineering more so than anything else. But I do think that Over the last 10 years, I've really had to entrust a lot of the product function with the team that we've hired in order to stay focused on these core economic and structural questions, because I think those are the most critical drivers of our success. And I still stay close to the product teams. Still, I think most people would say I'm a pretty product-focused CEO. But the challenge, I think, for me has been, how do I not use all of my time in the place where I'm really comfortable, but make sure the places where I'm uncomfortable are the ones that get a lot of focus. Because I think those are the ones that are more critical to our success than the places where we feel really comfortable. I think that's so well said because it's the trade craft that enabled you to build what you did. But if you just focused on that, you wouldn't be able to sustain what you just built. You need to really- Yeah, I mean, we build amazing products and no one would get their hands on them. And that's not that useful. But look, I also think having spent a bunch of years in product before this and having it be my first passion in the first place, I also think that I can be a helpful coach for our product teams in a fairly time-efficient way. Because I'm so deeply familiar with the domain, I think I can ask really supportive questions without making it the thing I do with 40 hours of my week. But it's definitely been a real pivot for my focus day-to-day from when I was a designer to running BioLite. It's much, much more focused on the business and commercial sides than the product side today. 
I'm pretty sure you're working more than 40 hours a week. Something tells me you're downplaying that significantly. So as someone who has a very strong moral compass and is likely to maintain that through your whole life, the last several months have been unlike, let's say, the previous 10 years in the life of BioLite. And it goes all the way back even to the fires in Australia at the end of the year to major political issues around impeachment, to losing Kobe Bryant, to then COVID, to then economics, then the murder of George Floyd and the protests and the resurgence of Black Lives Matter. How are you feeling and how are you leading the company through, I'm trying to avoid using the word unprecedented, but definitely the most trying and challenging of times in our generation in modern history? I think we've all had an exceptionally challenging year speaking for our staff, speaking for myself, speaking probably for every other company you've spoken to. I think it's a really interesting question. BioLite started with a social benefit mission. How do we help the half the planet that lives in energy poverty not live in energy poverty? How do we help enable them with the same energy security that keeps you nourished and productive and connected and comfortable that we have in a way that we take for granted, how do we bring that to the next 3 billion people? And that's always been the North Star of this organization and is still the North Star of this organization. But I think we've been forced to ask ourselves some questions around what are the systems that we engage in in service to solving those problems? And what responsibility do we have to reform some of the systems that are not directly about servicing that energy poor customer, but are also about What's the experience of our neighbors, of our staff, as we live in a very inequitable society? And how do we become a part of improving that experience both internally, even though we are focused externally on a social benefit mission? And I think, I don't want to say we were oblivious to that before this year. I certainly think that we've always tried to be thoughtful about how to create a sense of belonging inside of our organization in a way that enables a diverse workforce. And I think we also have really had our eyes open this year to how much more work we have to do. I don't know. I don't have a great answer for you other than to say we've always known what our impact goals were externally. And I think this year we've spent a lot more time thinking about how to strengthen those goals internally with the same level of focus. And I think that's a journey probably a lot of us are on and trying to make the space to have the focus and the engagement and the ongoing long-term commitment to make real progress. I think you said it very well in that it's really the long-term commitment. I think that the thing that worries me, and I see this with our, my own agency, but also with our clients, is how do you make this something that's sustainable? In the same way that there are systemic inequities, we need to create systemic counter inequities to counterbalance those things. And that requires a lot of work over a period of time. We're not going to solve it in two weeks. And my biggest worry or concern, both from a macro and kind of a day-to-day standpoint, is just making sure that our foot is on the pedal. So even in our own agency, we have a DNI committee we always have. And from recruiting to, quite frankly, even having a more diverse set of guests on this show, on this podcast to the language we use, to how we counsel our clients. There's so many different areas that we need to look at and improve. 
I'm trying to make sure that we stay focused on it. We shouldn't over-index on it, but we also shouldn't kind of underfund it with our time because it's not as much about funding. It's about time and commitment and focus. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges we're all going to have. Large companies and small companies, professional services firms and tech companies, making sure that this is a long-term commitment. Yeah, and I think that there are probably a mix of measurable, hard policy actions. And so for us, as an example, we have now set an internal target of every time we open a new position, 50% of the candidates considered need to be people of color. The first step to becoming a more diverse organization and making sure we are equitably creating opportunity is to make sure the candidates who come into the organization are diverse. And we also have set goals for diversity in our leadership team, which today, quite honestly, is not as diverse as it needs to be. And so we've set a three-year target for adding meaningful racial diversity to our leadership team. And I think there's some hard and fast policy changes that we're looking at or that we've committed to. But then I think that there are also more subtle cultural shifts that need to take place. And so we've engaged, even going back before the murder of George Floyd, in unconscious bias training as an organization, similar to you guys, we've had an equity and inclusion working group for the last couple of years. We set sort of initiatives inside of each year to make sure that we can stay focused on a small enough number of goals to really be accountable to those goals. But I think you're right. It's about carving out dedicated space to keep that work moving forward. And we definitely don't get it right every day, but I think we're committed to learning from our mistakes and getting better and continuing to keep the focus on. One of the things I'm hoping for, at least when it comes to publicly traded companies, is economic incentives and disincentives are a great lever to create social change and impact social justice. It, it just it is what it is. And that could be something as simple as we see it when you have the NBA saying, you know, we're not going to play until we see change. They have power. There's a lot of power there, not just in sports, but in business. And in the same way that ESG has risen and become a very important measure for investors in the investment community, I'd like to see more kind of social justice, diversity, inclusion, and equity and equitable structures and systems become part of that as well for larger corporations. And I think that's what's going to happen next because there needs to be a baseline. You need to be able to measure it. And I haven't seen that yet, but I'm hoping that that will happen next because then I think you will start to see some significant change and not just credentialing because that's what's happening right now. You have companies credentialing. They're showing pictures of people of color they've hired. That's great. That's weird. That's not everything. Look, I hope that companies like ours, which maybe one day will be the next set of publicly traded companies, the fact that we came up with some of those economic incentives. So BioLite is completely funded by social and environmental impact investors who have, before making investments, done full external ESG evaluations on the business. So it has always been connected for us to our sources of capital. And obviously for those guys, a lot of the focus is on how many people of what income level will we electrify in which countries. But it's also about our internal governance and equity practices. And we get formally quantitatively evaluated on that in ways that get connected to our equity investments. And I think that building that muscle early in a company's life hopefully means that when we become the next generation of larger, more established companies, that these practices are really intuitive and ingrained for us. 
But I would just say for us, we're already measured that way. Right. Because you're purpose built. It's interesting. I was speaking with the founder of Lisa Sleep not long ago, and he said, if you wait until you're successful in a new venture and then decide, oh, we want to give back, it's very hard. It's just icing on the cake because you're not really, the cake wasn't baked with purpose inside of it. And it's always better to start out as a public benefit and having social impact because then you're measuring it along the way. And that is your North Star. That's how you know if you're successful. And I feel like you guys have definitely managed those dualities really, really well. It's super impressive. And I kind of feel like you hinted that you want to go public one day. I don't know. I think you said it here first. I think you said you might be a publicly traded company one day. Look, I think we aspire to help tens and moving towards hundreds of millions of people gain access to reliable, safe, affordable energy. And whether that's done in a private setting or a public setting, I don't think that's not the question we ask ourselves. The question is, how do we go to work every day and help the maximum number of people gain the benefits of reliable energy access? Full stop. That's where the conversation is for us. And if we are successful in helping 100 million people gain access to energy for the first time, like I'm sure the rest of the economic considerations will also take care of themselves. Do you know, just off the top of your head, how many people you have impacted in emerging markets? I do. And we're keeping that in our back pocket for a big announcement at holiday. I guess I can say this. This year, we will cross the millionth customer mark in Africa. And that's really more, though. I mean, I don't know how you're defining million customer, but if you're just defining it as a family or one person, obviously, there's a multiplier. So it's really millions of people. We are including family sizes inside of that. So yeah, it would be hundreds of thousands of customers with north of a million beneficiaries. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. But look, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of millions of people or billions of people, hundreds of millions of households who still don't have access. We want to be careful not to pat ourselves on the back for reaching a million of a billion people. Like that's all we're doing is creating proof of concept today. Real impact is how you scale from here. And I think to me that, I don't know if you're okay touching on the subject or not, but for me is a question I want to raise around the difference between social enterprise and cause marketing. And let me start by saying, I think there's a huge amount of value in both. If you are a company that is ready to dedicate 1% of your revenue to investing in social or environmental benefit causes and entrusting the deep practitioners of that change-making, whether for Patagonia, it's grassroots environmental organizations, or Warby Parker, it's Vision Spring eyeglasses in India. That is really, really important, powerful work. And there's a lot of problems out there in the world that aren't yet well-aligned. Their economic value and their social value are not well-aligned because we don't price things well inside of today's markets. There's a lot of the world that requires philanthropy to move these issues forward. And I'm extremely grateful and admiring of companies like Warby Parker and Patagonia who dedicate some of their profit. But I think that's very different than saying the engine of my company is the thing that yields change. And so every time that engine turns over, someone's life is improved as opposed to I sell jackets and some of that profit moves over to this unrelated thing. So all of my focus, all of the muscle of my organization is around selling Gore-Tex jackets. 
And that helps yield some profit, which we can then take 1% of and push it in this really, really genuinely helpful direction that might not exist without it. I think for us, the question is, how do we make sure that every dollar of turnover in our organization or almost every dollar of turnover at the organization is creating that change in the world? That the engineering team we have internally isn't just using the profits of their work to fund this other thing, but like their time, their intelligence, their focus is going towards the actual products that create those solutions, the actual distribution networks that create those solutions, the actual operations infrastructure that can deliver that. And I think that that's very different than my business is here and my impact is here. I think what social enterprise tries to do is say the business and the impact are in the same spot. And that means 100% of our turnover is focused on impact as opposed to a 1% byproduct of it. And I think that that's sometimes a distinction that is really obfuscated in the way that companies market today. And while I'm happy to see both, I think we need stronger language to distinguish between them. I'm 100% with you on that. And I'm very comfortable addressing it. And I think we've had on the show, but also I've worked with companies across that spectrum. And I think it comes down in some ways to me, I'm oversimplifying it, is the difference is, are you focusing on symptoms or solutions? And you're focusing on solutions. I think that the Bombas guys, the Warby Parker folks who are also coming on the show in a few weeks, I, you know, Bolin Branch is, Bombas isn't solving homelessness, but they're making it a little bit more palatable and easier for people who are homeless because the number one requested item is socks. Same thing with Lisa Sleep. Because you're able to donate beds to shelters, they can sleep better, but it doesn't necessarily solve the problem around homelessness. It might solve the problem around bedlessness and shelters, but it doesn't mean that what they're doing isn't genuine, authentic, or impactful. It's just different. It's not a social enterprise in the way that you're describing it. With Bolin Branch, they made a decision to try to change the supply chain so that they're only working with cotton farmers who are being paid fairly and equitably versus how larger manufacturers in textiles are treating the same farmers or not working with them at all. So I think it is a huge distinction, unfortunately, a distinction without a difference among the mainstream public because it requires nuance and explanation. And both are good and are worthy, but they are different. They are absolutely different. So I appreciate you raising that because I think you probably are the one guest so far who has described it very eloquently and in an articulate way that anybody can clearly understand. I think there, while I'm on the soapbox on this one, I think there's one other distinction that could use some improved language in how we talk about it. And again, see tremendous value on both sides of it. And I think they're different, which is the distinction between sustainability and impact. And I don't know that these are official Webster definitions of these words, but here's how I think about the difference. And I think sometimes we confuse our customers by referring to them interchangeably. Sustainability is the avoidance of negative outcomes from your business. And so if the question was, how do I produce less waste in my supply chain? The answer could be, don't exist. I'm not suggesting that's the right answer, but it's different. And so I see sustainability as table stakes of minimizing harm. Impact is saying there is this larger problem in the world that I want to move from here to here. And when I'm done, 
the world is materially better for my existence as opposed to in the process of doing what I wanted to do, I did as little harm as possible. And I think that they're both really important and I think they both need to exist and they both need to be prioritized, but I also think that they're different. And I think that's another place where we could really sharpen our language in how we talk about thoughtful moral businesses and that thoughtful moral businesses need to be doing both, but speaking about them more specifically. Not to get too like existential, but like, do you think, I don't think every business can be a thoughtful moral business. And by that, I mean, if that's the case, then I can't use my cell phone because in order for that cell phone to be built, minerals needed to be extracted from the ground that likely people died for or because of that extraction. Now, you could probably make the extraction better. And I think lots of companies are improving that. But extraction of that disruption to communities and people's livelihoods or lives is almost impossible. So there's a certain point at which, as a consumer, I do believe there are certain industries that are ripe for being disrupted. And there's an impact that they can have that is less kind of materially damaging to humans and the planet. But I also think there's certain businesses. I mean, look, I applaud Amazon because eventually they say they're going to be all electric. But how do you change UPS, Amazon, FedEx? I guess the US Postal Service has a lot of places to change. But there's certain businesses, I don't know if we can only change them just so much, but we still need them as businesses. I completely agree with that. And to be clear, I accept that in BioLite's operations, we do create some amount of environmental and resource harm in what we do. Like it's unavoidable. You have to, otherwise you couldn't be a manufacturer. It's almost impossible. Yeah, I think all I'm suggesting is that we separate the conversation around minimizing environmental or social harm from solving problems that improve people's lives. I think those are separate concepts. I think we need to draw a clearer line between them. And I think the simplest one is, does this get better when I exist or don't exist? And I feel like if the answer is it gets better when I don't exist, I feel like that's about sustainability. And how do I, in doing the thing that has value, don't get me wrong, I use and love my Gore-Tex jacket all the time. And it's a really important product for me. It adds a lot of value to my life. And I'm really glad that Patagonia is spending time looking at less harmful water repellent chemicals. But the fact of the matter is there would be no water repellent chemicals if I didn't buy this jacket. And so I think I'm just suggesting that we use more specific language in how we address both of those pieces and accept the fact that there is some degree of harm as we make things. And how do we just be as thoughtful and minimizing about that as possible? And in, look, I mean, maybe this is a segue to climate neutral, but I also think that you're right. Like, I don't think we're going to get here exclusively because of a bunch of moral business leaders. I think we're going to need the government to step in and particularly on the sustainability or avoidance of harm side of the equation, start to price externalities. And carbon seems to me to be the clearest example of a very, very costly externality that today we allow companies to impact for free. More so than ever before. Yes, exactly. Listen, we're going to have to leave it there. Great conversation. Great meeting you, even if virtually. I like these virtual studios, though, because we can still kind of see each other, which is kind of fun. You from Brooklyn, me in Westchester. And what's the best way to follow BioLite? And what's the date that we need to be mindful of for this big announcement? We will be making the announcement in November. We're really proud of that. We will have achieved that milestone shortly ahead of that date. But yeah, sign up for our mailing list at BioLiteEnergy.com to track the latest developments, both in terms of amazing new gear for camping, as well as 
following our impact in emerging markets. And one thing I really like about what we do in our storytelling is we tell you what we get right and we also tell you what we get wrong because I think those are both equally important learnings for our community. And it's human because we're not right all the time. No, for sure. Jonathan, thank you so much. I wish you all the best and keep doing what you're doing. And I'm looking forward to that announcement and also to hearing more from you guys in the coming months and years. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com. Follow our Instagram at the Bop Podcast. And learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com. Mm-hmm.